Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast where we talk about issues impacting the business of food, fuel, and fiber. I'm your host, Damian Mason. As ever, a great show today. A show that's going to give you some self-betterment. A show that's going to help you think about the future of agriculture. Because I have a guest today who is the host of his own podcast, which I've been on twice. He has a podcast called The Future of Agriculture. He is a brilliant guy. We'll get to him in a minute, but I want to tell you again about what we're talking about here today on the Business of Agriculture. Future opportunities for ag professionals. Maybe you're sitting there right now, you're saying, hey man, Damien, I love listening to this program, but you know what? You talk about everything from soil to, to the ag economy to the organic to how to communicate our advocacy, but you know what? You don't talk about me. All right, today we're going to talk about you, the ag professional, somebody who needs a job. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, hey, I want to get out there and make more money. I want to see what the future holds. Today we're going to cover that. What future in ag looks like is kind of a, something that I talk about a lot in my live presentations where I say, hey, there's going to be less farmers. There's going to be more capital invested. There's going to probably be more contractual production. There's going to be more innovation. Obviously, there always has been. There's also going to be a bigger role for niche and value added. Those are the kind of things I talk about in my live presentations. I've got a guy today that's going to tell you about his perspective on the future of agriculture. And then we're going to give you some usable takeaways that will make all of us stronger at what we do in serving this industry. So my guest is Tim Hamrich. Tim Hamrich is a employment placement person. He's a professional services uh, for large companies. I don't want to say the word because I don't want him to be mad at me. He's a headhunter. Ladies and gentlemen, I just said it. He's a headhunter. You know what he does? He helps great people find great opportunities with great organizations. And by the way, I overused the word great, but then again, I've been listening to Donald Trump speak for the last year. Again, my friend, Tam Hamrich, friend of the show, welcome. Hey, glad to be here, Damien. And I hope this doesn't mean that I have to stop using your talents to boost my own downloads on my show now that you have a show. We're both podcasters. We both know how this works. We can be prostitutes and podcasting together. You send people your way and, and you, in my way, and I'll send my people your way. It's all going to work out. There's enough for both of us. Tim Hamrich is a smart guy, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really glad he came on. I've been a guest twice on his podcast, which is called The Future of Agriculture. If you've not listened to it, I would recommend you do check it out, The Future of Agriculture with Tim Hamrich. Tim's out of Austin, Texas. He's a past FFA national president has an undergraduate degree from UC Davis. He's Californian by birth, Texan by the grace of God. I'm sure that he doesn't say that, but you know how people say that because let's face it, everything's not only bigger in Texas, it's better, just ask them. He has a master's degree from Kansas State, so he's a wildcat, has a master's degree, he's a smart dude, he's here with us to talk about all sorts of things that we said already, particularly the future of agriculture, future opportunities for ag professionals, and where this whole thing is going, how you can be better as an employee. Mr. Tim Hamrich, what else did I not cover? I, that was actually a really comprehensive intro. I appreciate that. No, that, that's everything. I uh, also run a website called aggrad.com that's specifically targeting young professionals and students entering agriculture to give them resources how they can get into the industry. But uh, other than that, I think you got it all. <laughs> well, thank you. All right. Here's the thing that, uh, that we need to be cognizant of. 
that I think we should start right off. A lot of these people listening to my podcast, they might be farmers, they might be self-employed like you and me. They might also be employees. Maybe they're driving their truck down the road right now, they're in seed sales, they're in chemical sales, they are grain traders, uh, whatever. They're saying, all right, what is in this program for me? Well, first off, we're gonna talk about the, the, the next 10, 20, and 50 years of our industry, but more importantly, we're gonna talk about you and the business climate right now. Oh, everybody talks about the ag economy. I've said in my last three podcasts, I think this industry runs for the exits screaming fire faster than any other industry. Oh my goodness, the sky is falling. I mean, we are sometimes the chicken little. Am I being insensitive to the person that's out here struggling? No, I get it. There's some people that are in a little tight margin right now, but agricultural uh, economics, as my background tells me, we're in actually about a normal ag economy right now. We're probably in a pretty good situation compared to certainly the 30s, the 80s, and some other times in between. So are companies hiring? What's happening out there? Yeah, companies are, are definitely hiring. I, I think what we need to be aware of is that the industry is is in a state of change and probably will be in a constant state of change going forward. I mean, Damien, you know, from your reinvention message that you tell businesses all the time, it's it doesn't mean if the old way is is not looking so promising anymore, it doesn't mean you run for the exits. It doesn't mean the sky is falling. It means you adapt and you move on. Uh, and I, I think the, the same thing is happening in the job market. So there are positions that we are seeing fewer of, um, but there are other positions that are booming right now. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, still in the meat processing industry, we are seeing huge demand for, for talent all over the spectrum. And that's from like supervisors when it comes to a maintenance department. So learning how to work on equipment that, that processes meat, those jobs aren't going away. Computers aren't going to take those jobs away anytime soon. Uh, all the way up to people who understand data and can articulate data in, in, uh, in terms that, that farmers can understand. Now, this isn't some nerd that w wants to sit in a basement and look at spreadsheets all day. This is somebody who can understand enough about technology to actually teach that technology and consult that technology with a farmer or a livestock producer. So those okay, are- Okay, so you're, you're saying, first off, uh, we'll talk data and we'll go backwards. Uh, data, meaning if, if I've got uh, enough technical knowledge and, I can, and I'm a sales-oriented person, and I can learn this product and then go out into the marketplace and show the marketplace how it is usable and can make them profitable. There's a place for me that I can get hired tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. More than one place, as a matter of fact, especially those that are, you know, concerned about the big corporate mergers that are going on. Oh, what happens when their rep and, and my rep, we become redundant and we only need one rep? Well, there are those types of jobs for that person. You already have the relationships. You already know how to talk to the farmer. If you can uh, educate yourself on more, maybe more of the data aspects and the software aspects that are entering into a farmer's daily life, there's a job for you. You mentioned then before that, you said meat. You're seeing lots of opportunities in meat. Is that because you're in Texas or is it because the, the United States of America right now, North America needs meat people? Uh, yeah, it's more the latter. In fact, most of the positions I'm seeing aren't even in Texas. Uh, and it brings up another big point, you know, for my services to be of value for a company, I have to be able to fill positions that they have a hard time with. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to think the positions they're probably going to have the most hard time with are places that maybe generally people aren't excited to move to. So maybe that's, you know, rural Mississippi as an example. No offense to those who live in rural Mississippi, but maybe there's a meat processing plant in rural Mississippi that needs talent and I can help them fill that role. So uh, this all, you know, by, by nature of where those meat processing plants are, a lot in the Mid-South and the Southeast, uh, but certainly there's some in the Midwest 
as well. In fact, we're working on a few jobs in Iowa in both the egg and the beef industry, uh, trying to fill operations management people. By the way, we're not sure if we have listeners in Mississippi, so don't worry about offending the listener in rural Mississippi. I've struggled there myself. I make a crack. I've only done one paid gig in Mississippi for my entire 23 and a half years on the speaking circuit. I opened the show by saying, thank you, Mississippi. You're dead last. You're number 50. You're the bottom of my list. And an old man in the front row raised his hand and said, Damon, we's last on every other list, too. <laughs> So, so any, anyway, we like Mississippi. We do, we, uh, we do indeed want to go there again, but we just don't get there often. Here's the thing. We both know, let's, let's face it, we're talking about the business of agriculture. That's, this podcast is the business of agriculture. If Tim has a placement and ADM or Cargill have somebody that with three years experience, and they're going to pay them $140,000, and they're going to put them in the Twin Cities or in Kansas City, that's going to be an easier placement than we need somebody with five to 10 years of experience. We're going to put them in Tupelo and we're going to pay them $43,000. And it's also the overnight shift. We both must admit, and everybody on this podcast must admit, agriculture is a business and there's going to be some opportunities that are more desirable than others. Right. And that's where we really got to just look for the right fit. It's, it's not so much of if it, if it were uh, a deal where, hey, this many years of experience equals this, this job, then yeah, LinkedIn would take over and I'd be out of a, I would be out of a profession. But uh, we really have to look at all the dynamics. So where are they from? Where's their family? Where is their, their spouse from? Where is his or her family? What's going to be the best fit long term? Tim, you brought up an interesting thing there because somebody's listening right now, and I'm talking in case you just forgot, I'm talking to Tim Hamrich, professional placements expert with Agri Associates, that is his company. Okay, that's a glorified term for headhunter, and you're saying, I, I use LinkedIn, why would I need Tim? In one sentence, tell me your value proposition, Tim. Yeah, what we do is help agribusinesses identify and attract talent that is going to be the right fit for their organization. And that's the one sentence, the expansion on that is what does right fit mean? And that's a lot more than just surface level fit. It's, it's a fit where they're going to actually stick around with the company and be happy and thrive in their career long term. And there's some uh, objective and subjective indicators we can use to try to find that fit. So if you're driving along in your uh, seed truck right now, if you are sitting there as an ag professional listening to this podcast and you say, you know what's interesting? I've been tasked with hiring three new people to cover such and such territory. And I've been on LinkedIn all night last night. I'm exhausted because I'm looking at all these people. And by the way, one thing when I notice when I look at LinkedIn, 90% of these people talk about how passionate they are. And I just want to point out here, Tim, for crying out loud, please tell your folks that you're trying to get jobs. Stop with the passion. When I saw a post on LinkedIn from a cheese enzyme seller, they saw cheese enzymes that said, we are passionate about what we do. For crying out loud, how passionate can one be? For instance, we're just for an example here, I looked it up. Passion means an almost uncontrollable emotion. How can you be uncontrollably emotional about cheese enzymes? So anyway, if you're driving around and you're thinking, man, I got to hire three people, don't do the hard work yourself. Find somebody that does this as their business. It's kind of like, do you want to make your own drywall or go buy drywall down at the lumber yard? Hire somebody that does this for a living, and that's Tim Hamrich with Agri Associates. He'll find the right fit for you, as he just pointed out. All right. 
Tell me more about the ag job market today. I'm just starting out. Let's say I'm a kid. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm 22 years old. I'm about to graduate from a, a land grant school with a, an agricultural, economics, food science, uh, meat science, uh, grain merchandising, you name it. What's, what's it look like out there? Yeah, and there's actually real data on this. Uh, you know, Purdue University did a study recently uh, indicating that there would be something like 66,000 new jobs in the agriculture industry between 2015 and 2020, and only about 44,000 graduates to fill those jobs. So 22,000 uh, gap. Now, does that mean, oh, wow, I can demand twice the salary that, that you know, people who graduated 10 years ago can demand? No, they're going to find those people from somewhere, but it does mean that there are a lot of opportunities out there for you. And uh, so I think the demand is quite strong. And the other thing that's playing into young people's favor, and I don't think they realize it, is the changing landscape of the industry works to their favor. They're just less set in their ways. They're more open to new ideas, and they can bring that into an organization. And uh, I think that that creates a lot of opportunities as well, because there's jobs like we're talking about about these like customer success managers that are using data to translate to, to farmers. That's a job that didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago. Well, and, that, that's a great point right there. Just the other day, in the last podcast uh, I did, we talked about the, the misconception in suburbia that, boy, oh boy, we're losing farms. That's a big one that every 10 years, somebody in the mass media comes out with, oh, there's less farmers, they're getting older, and we're losing farms. And then you try and say, no, 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 that's okay. This farm um, uh, still exists. It's just that now someone else operates it or someone else bought it. And so the idea that there's no opportunities is a bit of a misnomer. And that's bringing me to my next topic. About a year ago, I think it was Yahoo or some other such mainstream media source did a big article that there are the five worst professions, the five worst professions you should even consider or let your child pursue. And they listed agriculture. And it was straight out of Silicon Valley, a bunch of disconnected yahoos that knew nothing about food, fuel, and fiber, that they said, well, there's less farmers and, and, and blah, 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 and, and agriculture. And then they went through the revenue and said, and farmers don't even make any money. I'm like, well, I could have told you that because we all know farmers try like hell to not pay income taxes. That's why they look like they make no money. Anyway, respond to that. We know, yeah. you and I, that agriculture is not one of the five worst professions to go into. Thoughts? Sure. No, it's, it's totally short-sighted. So they looked, at, they looked at data and drew some conclusions that were just outrageous. Like, for example, oh, wow, now we have less than, you know, 1.5% involved in production agriculture. So what a horrible profession to choose, ignoring all the other aspects on the value chain that go into agriculture. And then, you know, in addition to that, they're looking at the number of farmers. I, I think it's something like, 70% of primary operators uh, of the data, 70% of primary operators, that's not their number one source of income. So of course it looks like they're not making much money. They're, they're farming as a hobby or on the side of doing their primary job. So it's really short-sighted just to look at those numbers. Obviously, like you said, you and I know uh, the business of agriculture is, is actually uh, quite booming right now in terms of the opportunities and the dynamics. Uh, you, meant, you mentioned a lot about how because of our incomes, we have all these choices. We can be picky about the food we eat. That creates so many niches to go into and so many unserved sub-segments of this market uh, that are just waiting for um, creative thinkers to, to fulfill that demand. There's a, uh, first off, yeah, when somebody at Yahoo was commissioned with, uh, tasked with, go find uh, the top five things that nobody should ever try and do for their career. Yeah, they pulled up some data and found out that it turns out um, 60% of the people who call themselves farmers only uh, actually net 
negative $300 a year. Well, of course, because we all know how that works. I, I had to go out and I had to go out and put in some drainage tile just to make sure I didn't make any money on my farm this year. Anyway, <laughs> we, we know that that's not the real case. Uh, where are you seeing the opportunities then besides meat and data? Is there anything else you throw in there? Yeah, I think uh, just kind of piggybacking on the the point about rural America, uh, certainly urbanization has has played against uh, filling some of these roles. Uh, take into consideration like somebody to operate a grain facility, so a grain elevator superintendent. I mean, this is somebody that's going to make, if, the, if they have some experience, 80 grand plus, and probably live in an area where a house is 80 grand minus, and they really can be a fantastic wealth bu building opportunity if, uh, if you can enjoy living in, in rural America. So we see a lot of those where uh, they're, maybe they're not new positions, but they're in positions, uh, they're positions in areas that have kind of been slowly losing population and losing uh, talented people. Fantastic point you bring there. The Grain Elevator and Processing Society is a trade group that has used me, put me on a stage at their annual convention once or be, uh, maybe even twice. And they uh, teamed up with your second alma mater, Kansas State, to create a program for that uh, career path. And they told me when I was on stage and did my presentation, afterwards, you know, I got talking to them, that they have 100% placement and that you can, like you said, you can make $80,000 with not that tremendous amount of experience. The problem is you might be in a town in uh, Western Kansas that has a population of 100 people. And you say, well, I don't know if a young person wants to go there. I'll tell you what, I would have gone anywhere where they'd have paid me that kind of money. I went to a lot. I went to wherever they paid me and they paid me about one third that amount of money when I got out of college. Right. I can remember growing up in California. In college, I read a personal finance book. And one of their points was, don't ever take out a mortgage that's more than two and a half times your, your salary. And I thought, how could anyone ever do that? I mean, that just seems like, uh, I mean, there's no way you could have that much money for, uh, for a down payment in order to afford because I was growing up in California. This is you know, pre-2007 and like houses were 500,000 and wages were 50,000. Like I'm never going to get there. Uh, well, then I moved to Bird City, Kansas and was making uh, you know, far above uh, 80,000 and my and bought a house for 85,000. So my mortgage was like 65% of my base salary. So these opportunities exist. And, and I think people don't take that into consideration. They look at salary as the only variable instead of looking at, you know, lifestyle, uh, wealth creation opportunity. Um, as you know, you know, building wealth is all about spending less than you earn, right? And I do, I do know that. And we've been on both sides of that. We've been up and down that ladder. But yes, uh, <laughs> I can tell you that um, when you live in a affordable area and make a income that is uh, high, you can really, really put some hay in the barn. And that's uh, what we're talking about. Speaking of hay in the barn, where's there too much hay? <laughs> More importantly, where's there a glut? A friend of mine is an engineer smart guy and he talks about how uh, a stat that he read with one of his engineering associations was that there's more kids in college right now studying athletic training than engineering and i said well this is a function of we took our we took our little children and we got them playing soccer where they don't keep score in the suburbs and and, and that way everybody wins a prize and then the only thing that they did for their whole entire growing up was they drove around the tri-state region playing soccer games and they said, I wonder if I could do this for my job. So I'm going to go to college and learn how to tape ankles. Well, great. You learn how to tape grain uh, ankles and, and rub out groin injuries. How the hell do you make a living doing that? I'm not sure. But here's my thing. 
what is the athletic trainer equivalent in agriculture? Where do we have too many people and not enough need or demand? Uh, Damien, you, you love walking on the edge. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think um, where I do see a little bit of a glut is um, – uh, ag communications. Ag communications is a, a, a great degree. It can go a lot of different places, but I talk to um, a lot of ag communications grads that only want to do one thing, which is be a communications person for a trade organization. And and I would encourage them, I'm not trying to, to bag on ag communications, but I think explore sales, uh, explore things like we were talking about customer success. Use your ability to communicate, to form a narrative, to tell a story, to connect with people. Uh, for other applications than just necessarily being a communications person at, at a trade organization, because there's only so many of those jobs. Fantastic point you make, because I, I know that we've been full, we're 10 years into this thing of advocacy. Oh, you've got to be an advocate. I don't even like the word because it's not a real word. I mean, when I'm sitting drinking beers with my buddies, I make up non-words just to see if they're listening, but advocacy is not really a word. And the thing is, if we, meaning you, me, and everybody else that's actually in this business earning a living on the side are ag communicators, do we, do we really need uh, you know another boatload of uh, kids coming out of college that are going to specialize in ag communication? I don't know. And also, these uh, trade groups, they probably, they probably don't need as much help in that as you might say. So thank you for saying that. And you also brought up a point. If you're an ag communications major, Take a couple sales classes and go get yourself a sales job because here's what the big, this is not a secret, but somehow it is. Tim Hamrich, I'm listening, I'm talking to him with Agri Associates in case you just forgot. He's a professional placement expert. He's going to take this company's need and find a person that fits it. So when we really look at what we're trying to do here is whether it's my entrepreneurial job, yours, or the companies that hire you, what we're trying to do is add value. And that's where the ag communication kid that then also goes and gets some sales experience now has value because sales makes money. You talked to me before we started recording about a grain merchandiser. That's a profit center for this organization. They make money. So think in terms of what you can add to yourself, what value you can add to yourself that adds value to your employer. And that's what you're talking about. That's exactly right. And I, the, the number of resumes I see that mention skills like uh, Microsoft Word and social media, like those just aren't really differentiators. Uh, and so I think, think about what is your differentiator? What, what sets you apart? Uh, and I, I think sales would be a fantastic one because that is one thing, even when uh, times are tough, uh, companies need more sales. And so I, that's a certainly a great specific uh, career outlet to go after. I didn't even get my first job in agriculture in 1992 when I graduated because ag was still reeling from the 80s collapse. But because I was an ag econ with two sales classes and two sales internships, I got a job when almost nobody was getting jobs. So I'm very proud of that. And also, uh, I would say that your advice is extremely valid. Good times are bad. If you can sell and you have sales training and some sales experience, you're going to be hireable. What about the ag entrepreneur? I'm sitting here as an ag uh, entrepreneur myself, as are you. What about the person like you and me that's listening to this podcast? Where is there an underserved area or what thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up because, uh, in fact, someone commented on, on one of my LinkedIn posts the other day that, oh, you can't, you can't get into your own ag uh, business unless you are born into it or you're get, you win the lottery. And that's, 
that's missing the point, right? Yes, if you want to be a 5,000 acre row crop farmer in the middle of Iowa, you're going to need a lot of money. But that's not the only entrepreneurial opportunity in agriculture. The niches you talk about, uh, you know, there there's uh, everything from uh, mushrooms. I've had somebody on my podcast that, that uh, actually grows bugs for like cricket flower. You know, there's just all these really fringe niches that are great opportunities. And I think uh, also this locally grown, you can love it or hate it, but it's got real money behind it. Um, one thing I thought about this summer is like, boy, there is a need for someone to figure out logistics of locally grown. There's people who want to leave the city, go out and farm on the outskirts and sell to these farm to table restaurants and sell to farmers markets, but they don't really want to do all these logistics. So, I mean, there's one solid idea right there. Like who is running the logistics in your local farm to table economy? Uh, by the way, you and I are both on the exact same page there. I mean, I have some people that fight with me on social media. And by the way, I was pointing out fighting on social media means typing in capital letters with exclamation points. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a far cry from real fighting. And then secondly, I have people that fight with me sometimes uh, and they say, well, you know, you keep talking about this value add and you keep talking about, you know, us going out and doing this stuff. You know, that's not what we do. Well, well, great. You know, here's the reality. I didn't invent the marketplace. The marketplace involves. It invented itself. So if you want to be, if you want to go out and drive your combine and put your 32-row uh, corn planter in the ground, you probably need a lot of capital. And what your one person you said there said you better inherit a lot of money. There's probably some truth to that. If you're going to farm 10,000 acres, the future of corn and soybeans is probably going to be large-scale commodity production, and you're going to just have to be big and be very well capitalized. But there is more opportunity there has ever been where you can put out, I talked to a guy that sells earthworms and the castings, which is earthworm poop, not mm -hmm. too long ago. So think about that. And also it's local and it's organic. So there's these opportunities, these niche opportunities that are more, the, there are more opportunities because of the money. The suburban consumer will pay premium for those things. So I think there's still that. Besides on the production side, I'd say on the packaging and marketing side. Yeah. Some of these ag communications majors you just talked about really ramp up your PR <laughs> because you can sell Scottish Highland beef, all named Clarence, petted by your daughter, blessed by a rabbi, easier than you ever could have 10 years ago. Yeah, my local farmer's market, there's a guy who sells out of duck eggs at $10 for a half dozen every week. Uh, that's crazy to me. By the way, I hope you just wrote that down. $10 for a half dozen duck eggs at the local farmer's market. Right now, I tell you what, some of our listeners are hanging up and they're running out and <laughs> buying ducks. Okay. I'm in Austin. <clears throat> and in case, you're, in case you forgot who I was talking to, this is Tim Hamrich, my buddy, friend of the show, podcaster. He has the Future of Agriculture podcast. Uh, when you're not listening to me, please listen to him. We're going to move into topic number three, although we've done a lot of topics. Uh, first off, you help people get jobs, but more importantly, you help companies find the right talent, the great talent they need that's a right fit. What skill do these people that hire you, these companies, what do they say we really want? Yeah, once you peel back the layers, you know, because everybody's going to say the surface level, you know, we, we want to go get her, right? Once you kind of peel back the layers, I think uh, a couple things that stand out, uh, number one would be critical thinking, and then number two would be proactivity. So someone who is going to look for problems to solve, uh, think critically about those problems, and then take action themselves without waiting to be to be told. Um, I think that's, generally speaking, you, you could take those two qualities and put them in any job, operations, sales, marketing, 
quality, et cetera, management, and, and they're going to be pretty universal. Fantastic. Critical thinking, proactive. What about just critical? Because I'm kind of there. My wife tells me that. Is that a job skill? Uh, it, it, can, it can be, sure. It can be. <laughs> All right. Tim, what mistakes do you see most job applicants make? You said that they just go down the road of telling them how passionate and, and, uh, and hardworking they are. Yeah, I think not along that vein, not differentiating themselves. A big problem I see these days is all they're doing is applying. They're, they're hitting, you know, with one click, you can apply for most jobs now. And all they're doing is apply, 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 apply. And then they're wondering, why do I never hear back? How come I'm not giving, getting a job? Well, I, I think you're missing the point. I think you need to build your network. You need to get yourself out there. I'm, I'm amazed at how many ad communications, back to that part, ad communications people are not out there communicating on a platform like LinkedIn. They're just applying, applying, applying. And that's something, uh, <laughs> those that can do, those that teach can't, or whatever they say, those, those that can't teach. Anyway, the point is, so yes, I'm an ag communicator, but I don't communicate uh, very well. Where should we work on developing our skills? Yeah, if, you, if there is any opportunity for project management, and project management encompasses a lot of skills. So you are in charge of driving something forward. You have to enlist the help of other people. You need to schedule, you need to plan, you need to make sure the details get done. Uh, that skill set really goes, is very directly transferable uh, to a lot of places. And so this is what I tell interns. If there's any way with your internship, you can have a project that's yours. Just yeah. something the company's always wanted, you know, that's always been a problem, but it hasn't ever been something we wanted to throw money at. Like, own that project and really drive a, a, a real outcome, uh, the skill set you gain will, will last you forever. Not to mention the fulfillment. One thing that my wife told me before uh, when she worked in corporate, she says, you don't realize how fortunate you are in that you actually see a result from what you do. You, you, you write a joke, you put it on a stage, you, people laugh. You create this program, you get on a stage and you, and you reach the people. You, you, and there's something to that when you actually are accomplishing something, a project coming to fruition. And if you're saying that these people can say, I took this project to fruition. All right, you're a successful guy. Looking back, what mistakes did you make professionally? Uh, I, there, unfortunately, there's a lot of them. But uh, one of them is I, I thought... I didn't know what it really was like to be a manager until I was one and I totally underestimated management. Uh, and I, I talked to some young people out here now who have been working one year and think, boy, I don't think I'll be a manager at my current job for eight more years. And I'd really like to make a leap so I can go be a manager somewhere else. And I have to tell them like, you really need to stop and think and develop some of those management skills. So I was starting to management at age 29 uh, of, a, of a new facility during a corporate merger. And I was so unprepared. I, I did all the wrong things. Uh, I, you know, I hired people that I thought uh, I could influence. I could control instead of hiring the best people for the job. Huge mistake. Uh, I decided, I tried a little bit too hard to be friends with the people that I was managing as opposed to hold them accountable. Uh, so every management mistake you can probably think of, I made at age 29 in Binkleman, Nebraska. Um, but the good thing is I learned from it. And that's, I guess, the one positive is I was able to kind of learn and iterate and get better. But boy, I made a lot of mistakes. Well, I, I'm self-employed, so I don't know much about it. But I threatening people with a club or a gun is that a good management technique I mean, that's kind of how i do things i think they frown on that these days <laughs> okay uh what items in your background because i didn't talk enough about this tim, i was an ffa but tim hamrich my guest today was the ffa national president back about what uh be about uh 14 years ago no yeah, uh, 2002 2003 it's been a long time okay so anyway that helped you 
Yeah, it, it really did. It opened my eyes. So I, I hadn't traveled much, like a lot of people, I hadn't traveled much out of my county before I got active in FFA. And it, it took me to every college in, the, in uh, California uh, while I was kind of competing in livestock judging and doing that sort of thing. And then rising up through the ranks, you know, as a national officer, got to travel over 40 states in the year, got to go to Japan. And, uh, it opened my eyes to, to how many opportunities there were in agriculture and has inspired a lot of the stuff I've done since. Yeah, well, one thing that the, our listeners right now, really, let's face it, if you if your kid wants to have a future in this business and that involvement, 4-H, FFA, we have to stand and talk to adults. And, and, and you talk about critical thinking and you talk about uh, proactive. Those organizations are really good about that because you have to think critically to be a livestock judge. You have to think critically to be a soil judge. You know, these things that you're talking about, skills, are fantastic and you know FFA is the perfect organization no I think there's going to be some issues always there but look at what things we've already talked about critical thinking proactive uh, project management 4-H <laughs> project management from beginning to end I buy this calf I take care of it I have it and I see the the project come to fruition so I just wondered about that you're gonna encourage your children you've got two kids you're gonna pursue they're gonna tell them to pursue a career in agriculture Oh, I, I won't tell them to, but certainly would uh, encourage them if they if they wanted to. You know, we live in uh, suburbia right now, but, but my, my wife and I would love to get out to where they could experience ag a little bit more firsthand uh, from a production standpoint. And uh, the cool thing about being able to be home office is, is my daughter, even though she's only four, she already, you know, gets some exposure to what I do. And it, it's kind of fun. I'm looking forward to that as she can understand more. Right now, she thinks I uh, talk to people on the phone, I check email, and I get people to say yes. That's what she, she knows about what I do. You know what? She said she's four, and she's already got that much figured out. I'd say by age six, just tell the world you're homeschooling her and actually give her a headset, a phone, and a computer and have her start working for the business. I mean, let's face it. You, got, you can't get ahead if you're just working for yourself. you got to have employees. Why not an unpaid six-year-old? There you go. All right. Uh, my last thought here. You're a smart guy. You're an ag guy. You're the past national president of the FFA. You run your own company, Agra Associates. You have a podcast, The Future of Agriculture. You and I are both in this business and a different perspective. Give me your parting thoughts, advice to anyone involved in agriculture. Thoughts on agriculture. Last thought here. Uh, be open-minded to listening to the consumer. Remember that we work for a, uh, all of us, even those of us self-employed, we work for a consumer and we exist to meet their needs. Um, most of those consumers still just want the safest, cheapest, most abundant food supply in the world. Um, and there are other consumers that can afford to pay more for more kind of fringe uh, things. So be open to, to listening to the consumer instead of constantly trying to uh, force education down their throat. I make that point all the time. Thank you very much. That's Tim Hamrich and uh, he's a smart guy, but uh, that's a point that I make in my live presentations. Uh, back when I was a lighting fixture salesman, uh, I tried to tell the company this and we always learn these things. You want to sell what the consumer wants to buy or you want to try and sell what we can make. And sometimes in agriculture, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a dairy farm background and I tell this all the time, you know, dairy got real caught up in how can we sell more milk? How can we sell more milk? And you know what? Look at how well that's worked for us. We're 46 gallons of fluid milk consumption after World War II. We're down to about 17 or 18 gallons today. Just because we can make milk doesn't mean that the consumer wants to buy it. In this business and in all businesses, we work for other people. We're a consumer-driven business because all, cons all businesses are. I, I make that point. Thank you very much. That's Tim Hamrich. 
Again, check out his podcast, Future of Agriculture. He's a friend of the show. He's going to be back again with me someday because he has a lot of good stuff to say. I actually like him, and I don't like most people. He's got a company called Agri Associates. Agri Associates helps companies find great people that are the right fit when they have a need, a fill, uh, I'm sorry, a, a position to fill. You listen to the business of agriculture. Join me again. We'll do it. We'll keep it interesting. Hope it was today. I'm sure it was. Thank you very much. I'm Damian Mason, your host. The business of agriculture. We'll be back again. Join us. Thanks.